Isaiah 25, verses 6-9 to On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad. Rejoice in his salvation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you, and also with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in its place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he has said these things to her. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and thank you for your presence with us. We'd ask now that your word would rule over us, your spirit would teach us, and your glory would be our first and our only concern. For we ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. On the first day of the week, on the first day of the week, Mary is weeping at the tomb of Jesus. She's asked twice, Woman, why are you weeping? It should be obvious, right? She's at a tomb. Imagine this afternoon you decide to get out for a walk. It's a nice spring day. Your walk takes you through a cemetery. You see a woman kneeling in front of a headstone, weeping, clutching flowers. You catch a glimpse of the second date, March 23rd, 2021. Would you even think to approach her and ask, what's your problem? Why are you crying? Of course not. You'd know exactly what was going on. The answer would be readily apparent, her behavior utterly congruent with what is, utterly in step with reality. On the first day of the week, Mary is weeping in a graveyard. She's asked twice, woman, why are you weeping? An utterly insensitive and absurd question, unless, unless, her tears are completely out of place. Her behavior utterly incongruent with reality, completely out of step with what is. On the first day of the week. It's odd that John begins the story of the resurrection with these words. For over and over again, Jesus has said of himself, the Son of Man will die, but on the third day. The Son of Man will be handed over, but on the third day. On the third day day. But John doesn't use Jesus' words. He doesn't say on the third day, which it is. He says on the first day of the week, Mary went to the tomb. John is pointing us to something much larger, much more cosmic that includes, but goes far beyond the third day promise. It goes back to the beginning, the beginning of creation. In the beginning, on the first day of the week, God created the heavens and the earth. God planted a garden in Eden, and God the gardener walked with humanity in the cool of the evening. Here Mary mistakes Jesus for the gardener, which he is, but not in a way that she's quite seen yet. Here Mary holds the gardener responsible for Jesus' absence from the tomb, which he is, but in a way she hasn't quite seen yet. G.K. Chesterton, the English writer and poet, once wrote, On the third day, the friends of Jesus, coming at daybreak, found the grave empty, and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder, but even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. And what they were looking at was the first day of a new creation. And in the semblance of a gardener, God walked again in the garden. Not in the cool of the evening, but in the cool of the dawn. On the first day of the week, that first Easter, the dawn ushers in a new creation. And in light of that new creation, Mary's tears are completely out of place. Her behavior completely incongruous with reality, completely out of step with what is. And so it begs the question, 
What response is in step? What behavior congruous? What reaction befitting the dawn of a new creation? In the closing chapters of John that we'll be looking at in the coming weeks, as the disciples encounter the resurrected Jesus, we're given seven glorious pictures of what it looks like to live in light of an entirely new creation. This first picture unlocks them all. For John will say along with every other New Testament writer, if the resurrection is going to have any impact on your life, if its truth and power is to resonate in the deepest recesses of your life and reality, if it's going to change you in any real way, you have to believe that it actually happened physically, materially, historically. And in our first 10 verses, John gives us a pathway to such belief, a pathway to the resurrection being made real in your life. And it all hangs, surprisingly for John, as we've been seeing, it all depends on what we see. Now, John uses three different words for seeing in these 10 verses, laying out for us the pathway to belief. The first kind of seeing is observing. Mary goes to the tomb early in the morning and observes that the stone is rolled away. Does she believe by that that Jesus has been risen? No, of course not. We wrongly assume that ancient peoples were far more gullible, far more inclined toward believing untruth than we are. But a reflection on the past year of fake news and conspiracy theory should disavow us of any feeling of superiority. Mary is not more inclined to believe in resurrection than we are. She runs back to the disciples to articulate what was most reasonable, rational explanation for what she observed. They took the body. They? Grave robbers, perhaps? They? Enemies of Jesus set on desecrating his remains, perhaps? So Peter, verse 3, and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, seemingly John himself, for the story drips with vivid detail, run to the tomb. And John remembers running faster, but he stops and he simply looks into the tomb and he observes the linen cloths lying there. Peter, coming up behind, runs a little slower, but true to form, he barges right into the tomb And we're told, verse 6, what he saw. The linen cloths, the face cloth folded in a place by itself. Now we're not meant to picture here the cloths neatly folded up, but rather the word is twisted, as if they were still wrapped up. As Michael Green puts it, the way the linens were lying meant they were still wound around but empty, as if the body had passed straight through them like a chrysalis after a butterfly had left. That is what Peter saw. But John uses a very different word for his seeing. It is the word theoreo, from which we get the word theorize. He examined the evidence. He's looking for an explanation. Did someone steal the body? Why then would they take the time to remove the linens and carry away a decomposing corpse? And then twist the linens back up again. 
Did other disciples steal it? Why then would they desecrate the body by taking it away naked? Peter theorizes. He sees, desiring an explanation. Then John, verse 8, steps in and he sees. Again, a different word. He sees with meaning. He sees into. What's the meaning of all of this? So let me ask you a question. When you look at Easter, what do you see? What do you observe? An empty tomb? Eyewitness accounts? A global movement that spans two millennia? When you look at Easter, what do you theorize? Does an empty tomb mean that Jesus has risen from the dead? Of course not, but it demands an explanation. If there was a place where Jesus had been laid, it would have become a pilgrimage site to this day. If the disciples stole the body, they would not have died for the belief that he had risen. And if enemies had stolen the body, they would have produced it to squash the growing movement. If not resurrection, how do you account for the global exponential growth of the church? When you look at Easter, observing, theorizing. What do you see into it? What does it all mean? Is it resurrection? He is risen? John followed this pathway of seeing to believing. And in the verses following the resurrection story, he says, I write these things to you that you may also believe. And believing into him have a life in his name. He's saying to us, if the resurrection is going to have any impact on our lives, if its truth and power is to resonate into the deepest recesses of our life, if it's going to change us in any real way, we have to see and believe. For how will we face the fear of death if we do not see and believe he is risen? How will we silence the inner murmur of self-condemnation, self-reproach in the face of our sin if we do not see and believe he is risen? How will we push back against the darkness and injustice of our world in light of a new creation if we do not see and believe he is risen? On the first day of the week, the dawn ushers in a new creation. Do we see and believe? And as we see, see with the eyes of faith, we catch our first glimpse of a new creation. John and Peter return home, but Mary remains weeping. She too stoops into the tomb, but what catches her eyes are not the linen cloths, but rather two angels sitting on the place where Jesus' body were laid, one at the head and one at the feet. Strikingly, this is not the first time in the Scripture such an arrangement of angels is given. You see, right at the heart of the Jewish tabernacle, the Jewish temple, was the Holy of Holies. It was the meeting place between heaven and earth. And right at the center of the Holy of Holies was a gold box called the Ark of the Covenant. In it were the Ten Commandments. And carved into the lid of that box 
were two angels, one at the head and one at the feet. And God said to his people, here is where I'll meet you, between these two angels. It was a place called the mercy seat, the meeting place of heaven and earth, the meeting place between God and humanity. And each year, only the high priest could enter that room, that holiest of places, on the holiest of days, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, to make atonement for the sins of the people. He'd sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, that place between the two angels, so that God's presence could dwell with his people. He would be their God, and they would be his people. And Mary turns from that very scene, and immediately she sees Jesus, verse 15, mistakes him for the gardener, but he calls her by name, and in that moment, she recognizes who he is. She naturally, in love, grabs a hold of him. But Jesus says, don't cling to me, but go. Don't cling, go. Tell my brothers that I'm ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. This is the first time in the gospel that he calls the disciples his brothers. The first time that he calls his father their father. Something has radically shifted. It's an absolutely stunning scene. Mary enters, as it were, after the pattern of the high priest, the holy of holies, the meeting place between heaven and earth, between God and humanity. And she sees the mercy seat, the space between the two angels sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, making atonement for the forgiveness of sins. And she's told that that meeting place is now open to all. That his God can become our God, his Father, our Father. And she's sent out to share that glorious news as the high priest would be sent out to share the news of forgiveness. She is the first carrier of the gospel. The apostle to the apostles, the first apostle In this moment, Mary herself is the church. He had every opportunity to choose John, but he didn't. Every opportunity to choose Peter, but he didn't. He chose Mary. Deliberately chose Mary. And just who was Mary? In Luke 8, we're told that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. Seven, the number of fullness. She was under the full control of Satan. What would that have looked like? Well, Mark 9 gives us another picture of a demoniac found outside of the city, outside of community, half naked, harming himself, muttering, screaming to himself. Before she met Jesus, this was more than likely her lot. She is Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala, the resort city on the shores of Lake Galilee, It was a city known for its luxury, corruption, immorality. This was the Las Vegas, the sin city of that portion of the ancient world. To be called a Magdalene was not a compliment. And yet, Jesus chooses her, Mary, who would have been on the outside of every in-out category that the ancient world would have known. A woman, not a man a former demoniac, not a pillar of the community, 
a seedy background, not the morally upright. How much clearer could he be saying, my salvation, it's of grace. It's not based on gender or pedigree or effort or goodness. Grace. Grace. On the first day of the week, the dawn ushers in a new creation. And by grace, Jesus chooses Mary to reveal the new creation. I think we miss how scandalous choosing Mary would have been in the ancient world. It would completely turn the tables of every cultural given, most notably, the place of women. Such a picture of Jesus choosing Mary after the pattern of the high priest as the first apostle obliterates every form and expression of patriarchy and misogyny. Such things have no place in the new creation. Such a picture should make obsolete the question, should women be ordained ministers? Of course, Jesus chooses Mary of Magdala to be the first messenger of the gospel, the apostles to the apostles. In this moment, Mary herself is the church. And as the church in this moment, She invites every single one of us to take up our role in the new creation on the first day of the week. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, the gardener, planted a garden in Eden. He formed humanity from the dust of the earth, breathed life into them, and ordained them to a particular task to reflect creation's praise in worship of the living God and to steward God's good creation for the good of all. On the first day of the week, God the gardener walks in the garden and by grace chooses Mary, ordaining her and everyone after her chosen by grace to a particular task, to reflect creation's praise to tell of the great works of God in Jesus through his death and resurrection, and to steward God's new creation for the good of all. Not following the pattern of this world, but following the pattern of the cross. To lay down our lives, ourselves, our power, our privilege, for the sake of the other. That God's new creation, his kingdom may advance, as we look forward with hope to his return where he will fill the earth with his shalom, full flourishing in every aspect of life. On the first day of the week, the dawn ushers in a new creation. Do you see and believe? Do you by grace with Mary receive your ordination? to proclaim the good news, to steward the new creation for the good of all. Alleluia. Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. For with his rising, it is nothing less than the dawn of a new creation. Amen.
You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.